Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome to Christ the King. Those of you that are at home uh, joining us by YouTube, uh, thanks, thanks very much uh, for being here. Um, we're going to continue our series this morning, what I've entitled uh, Riptides and Redemption. And we're going to look at different people that get caught up in the, the currents and the power uh, of sin. And we don't want to minimize that. I know people don't like talking about sin, but it's, it's around us and in us, and we have to deal with it. When uh, Marty V and I moved to Florida uh, back in 1997, we, we um, started reading about all the dangers in Florida. You know, coming from the West, I thought nothing could be scary, but out there, there were scary things. Big spiders. If you ever want to hear a good spider story, I'll tell you. Uh, and... Uh, of course, there's alligators and there's snakes and there's bugs of every kind. And, and uh, there's also the ocean, which was only 45 minutes away. And we would hear these stories of people getting caught in what they call a riptide. And those of you that have been in the ocean, you know this is a, a, a very strong current. They're very dangerous. They kind of run sideways parallel to the shore. And uh, if you don't heed the warnings and you get out there in this water, they can catch you up and take you. Uh, generally, they go parallel to the shore, but sometimes they'll sweep you out into the uh, into the ocean where you can no longer see the horizon. And this is the case with all of us and with our original parents, Adam and Eve. We got caught up in a riptide of sin and darkness and death by ignoring the warnings of God, by not looking at the signs that he had given to avoid sin, and we get caught up. The danger in a riptide is that if you think you can overcome the power of that tide and you start swimming trying to get out of it, because it doesn't pull you under, it just carries you along. And uh, if you try to get out of it and you swim really hard and you press hard to get out, you will become exhausted and you'll die. And so I suggested last week, as we go through these different stories, uh, that you will see a pattern. And here's the pattern. We, we talked about Moses and the burning bush. And I'm going to read another part of this passage in a moment. But it's so familiar, I don't really need to read it all again. But you know, Moses minding his own business 40 years. He's out in the wilderness. He sees a burning bush, and he goes over to the bush and of course, God is in the bush, it's burning, but it's not consumed, and he starts to uh, uh, talk to Moses. And so this pattern, and I would argue that if you look at anyone in the Bible, any of the characters in the Bible, this pattern is repeated, and it's basically an interruption. You don't see people in the Bible out there searching for God and looking for him underneath every rock and behind every tree. Generally, they're just being carried away by the, by the riptide. And he interrupts, he comes in, and he stops this current from carrying them off. And then he says to Moses twice, Moses, Moses. There's only a few times in Scripture where these words, the double use of someone's name is used. And it's a very tender, gentle invitation, a kindness. He's not scolding, he's not trying to alarm him, he's not trying to scare him, but he's showing him that there's a relationship to be had, intimacy with God. Then he tells him who he is. He wants Moses to know him. And then he invites him to be with him. 
Come, let's go. We're going to go do this great thing to Pharaoh. We're going to wage war. And Moses, of course, asks the question, How, how's this? It's impossible. Who am I? And God says to him, I will be with you. He doesn't answer the question, who am I? We know who we are. And we know our abilities. And we know what's going on in our lives. So as much as we need to know ourselves, we also need to know God. And this is what the pattern is. What's interesting is that there's a dialogue. This is not something you see in any other religion. This dialogue between the benevolent and good God with a creature inviting them into a relationship. The gods did the other gods of the ancient Near East and almost throughout all religions Human beings were made to serve, to, in, to be enslaved to the gods, to do their bidding and their will, but not to be in a relationship. Christianity says if you're in a relationship, you will do his will. You'll want to. It will be motivating you because you love him and serve him, the risen God and, and our Lord Jesus. So I'm going to read, uh, this is a long portion, but I ask you to bear with me. And let's read this in your Bible. If you don't have one, there's some in the back. You're welcome to get them or just listen. Uh, and I'm going to start with verse 13. And I may jump a little bit just to speed things up, but uh, I'll let you know if I do. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. God said to, Mo- God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the God of your fathers, of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, has sent me to you. This, listen, This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders and tell them the God of your fathers, and so on. And I'm going to skip down now uh, to verse 17. And I promise that I will bring you up out of affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to you. Now this is God's speak. They will listen to you. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now this is what he's to tell Pharaoh. The God of the Hebrews has met with us. And he wants us to go into the desert three days. But he's going to resist. So look at verse 20. I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do. And after that, he will let you go. And I will give his people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Now, start in verse uh, 1 of chapter 4. Moses answered, now he's going to object. Moses answered, but behold, they will not believe me. He contradicts God flat. They will not believe me. God said they will. I say they won't. 
The Lord said to him, what's in your hand? And of course, there's a staff. And then he says, put your hand into your coat. The staff turns into a snake. And his hand goes into his cloak. And he brings it out and it's leprous. So God is, is giving him these, these signs of a staff turning into a serpent, a clean hand being made, a leprous hand, and then back again clean. And then the final one is famous, of course. Water of the Nile River will be made into blood. Look at verse 10. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. I'm slow of speech and slow of tongue. And the Lord said, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Look at verse 13. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. And he said, Is there not Aaron your brother? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he's coming. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will put I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and I will teach you uh, what to say to him and he sh- you shall be as God to him. Now go. This is the end of the reading of God's word. All right. Thanks be to God. What a dialogue. Now, I wish I could have read it all, but obviously, you know, we just don't have the time. But basically, after this first initial interruption there at the burning bush, Moses and God began to talk. And God lays out his plan. He has interrupted him. Moses says to him right away, honest question and a good question, who are you? This is from the last verses 1 through 12. Who are you? And God said, I'm God. Don't worry. I'll be with you. Then we get into this next series of dialogue. It's really kind of funny. Uh, It's also sad. Uh, because we have these uh, with God ourselves. And so Moses says, wait, but, but, verse 13, who are you again? Who are you really? And Moses gets this answer. I am who I am. Hava. Asher. Hava. Very hard to translate. Uh, and you've, you've probably seen it translated many, many different ways. Hava, asher hava. I am who I am, or I will be who I will be, or I was and always will be, or I exist. Whatever the translation is, it is what it generally is saying, what God is saying above everything else, and we could spend weeks just talking about this. God is saying, look, there's a multitude of gods in the world. He's not denying the existence of the gods that men have made up in their own mind. They're out there. But only one God exists. Only one God is Hava Sher Hava. Only one is existent, is I am that I am. Now you go and you tell them, I am has sent me. And of course, we could go into it. Believe me, there have been systematic theology books written just about this particular thing. It's really quite incredible. 
just about the eternal name of God, what we call Yahovah or Jehovah or Yahweh or whatever you want. I'll talk a little bit more about that in a second. But he asks him, who are you? And Moses is familiar with all these gods of the ancient Near East. There's millions of them, thousands of them. There are today. We make them up by the minute. In fact, if we don't have enough, we make up a few more. Because we need them. We don't think we're doing it. We're not as self-conscious of doing it as the Egyptians and other ancient religions, but we still do it. John Calvin said we are idle factories. We are constantly making these things up because they are what saves us. It's our job. It's our money. It's our looks. It's our reputation. It's this. It's that. It's whatever you want it to be. I'm Reformed. I'm a Presbyterian. I'm a Calvinist. Name your poison. And a lot of it is poison. And we rely on those things. I'm married. Oh no, I'm single. I'm divorced. I'm not. Whatever. It could be anything. And worst of all, it can be ourselves. We're making these things up all the time. And the Scripture tells us you have got to get them, get those things, and wrench them out of your life. Uproot them, cast them away, because another one will come. And you're just always doing that. It may seem wearying to do that. But it's not if you listen to this pattern of redemption that God shows throughout the Bible of interrupting and then getting involved with the person in their life and their relationship. And He will be with you throughout your life. In other words, you're not going to hit some plateau where you're really doing good. You're sailing. You're going to constantly be working with God. He wants it that way. He wants it that way so that you will draw near to Him and depend on Him and throw your life over Him. You say, well, but I've messed up too much. I'm too messed up. No, you're not anywhere near what Moses was. He was a murderer. He'd already killed somebody. And he was running away from God. Running away from the original call God had put on him to free his people. He just went about it the wrong way. Who are you? I am that I am. I'm the self-existent one. And he's making an attack. Right away, God is making an attack against the God's of Egypt. And you see this repeated throughout the Old Testament. In fact, that's what the Old Testament is about. It's about God being polemic and waging war, warfare against the gods of this world. And Jesus, of course, comes along and he is the great and final warrior who not only destroys the idols of Rome and the idols of Judah and the idols of Israel that they had built up in Pharisaism and self-righteousness. But he goes on and he destroys everything and rebuilds it when he rises from the grave. He puts to death, death, in his own death. It's really quite remarkable. He makes a mockery of the Egyptian gods. I am the one who truly exists I am that I am over against all those other gods that don't exist. You know, I don't know how much money you have in your bank account. Maybe not too much. I have so much I can't count it. So I just leave off and I know, never mind. (laughs) We are making good coffee. You need to get in there and have some. All right. So look, 
money, someday money is not going to matter. You're going to go into a, a box or into a crematorium or whatever, and you're going to be gone, and there's not any money going to go with you. Your looks are going to go. Your health is going to go. Everything goes, and we eventually die. And isn't that great news? You thought you were coming to church to get some good news? Yeah, but you also get resurrected. And you get resurrected in a way that nothing can ever be taken away. So God is revealing himself in this unique name. I am what I am. I am that I am. It is, it becomes the covenant name of God's people. It is his personal name. It is his name of redemption, of faithful love, of everlasting love, of covenant faithfulness, and of warfare. This is my name. This is going to be on the banners of our flags when we march into battle. I am that I am. Powerful. And when I passed through Egypt, now Moses told, when he recalled in Exodus and in Numbers, the history of Israel when he was recalling this uh, to be written down or to be remembered, uh, he said, this is what I'm going to do. It's what he tells. Moses is telling all the audience, all of us. I'm going to pass through Egypt and I'm going to strike the firstborn. I'm going to kill all the firstborn, not only animals, but people, everything firstborn. And I am going to execute judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I'm going to destroy them utterly. And that's what the why the water being turned into blood and the snake. Uh, if you've seen pictures of Pharaoh, you know, on his crown, there's a snake, right? Isn't it interesting that God used that image? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this, this thing of wood that pretends to be alive, and I'm going to make it into a thing of wood. Isn't that awesome? I mean, just think about it. He's just mocking them. You, you, clean, you think you're clean? I can make you unclean, and I can clean you. And blood? Watch this. The Nile turns to blood. So you can see what God is doing. Of course, you can go through every one of these and, and listen, theologians have made charts and written books about how the ten plagues of Egypt or the ten, you know, ten major gods of Egypt and uh, the, the, the plagues were there to destroy the gods and all that is true. But it, it also misses the point because he's not saying just ten. I'm going to destroy everything. Ten is a number of completion and he was going to destroy all the gods. Look at verse 15. The Lord, and this is where he says, Yahweh, Yahweh, Jehovah, Yahweh, is the God of your fathers, for you, the God of your fathers, for Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. This verse, just by itself, verse 15, is enough for us to baptize our babies. Now, I know a lot of you come from, I don't come from a, a Baptist uh, background. I come from an Eastern Orthodox background. And if you ever want to see a site, go to an Eastern Orthodox uh, baby baptism. Because you have godparents, you have people, they're spitting on the floor, shaitan, spitting on Satan, and there's saliva flying all over the place and water and babies going under and out and screaming and yelling. And I mean, if the devil was there, he's running for his life. Because it is something else to see. And, you know, Presbyterians were very calm. We just, a little water, okay, done, real quick, real quick. Because you know, we don't want the devil to get an idea that we might be doing something. We hope he'll just stay out and leave us alone. Uh, 
that verse in itself and many others that follow it are telling us this. That you are here today because the God of your fathers, that God saves people, not just individually, but in their families, and in their tribes, and in their nations. Doesn't mean that He doesn't just swoop in and save people who are not connected to anybody, but that His people are His people. Wherever you find, whenever you find yourself in church, it's because God has gone out and baptized you and brought you in. And that in itself is enough for us to say that the promise, just like Peter said in uh, Acts chapter 2, the promise is to you and your children. What must I do to be saved? Be baptized. The promise is to you and your children. Here it is again. It's in Genesis 12. It's in Genesis 15. It's in Genesis 17. It's in Genesis 19 with circumcision. On and on. I mean, you can trace it right through. Now, that's a little bit of a tangent. But I want you to know that we don't do things just because we think it's fun. We have scriptural warrant to baptize our children and to include them in this great covenant. Because the promise is to God. God has made a promise to us and our children the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now go, look at 16 and 17. Go to the elders and tell them, Yahweh has sent you. Go tell them, I'll be with you. They'll listen. Look at 18. They'll listen because I'm with you. He's hearkening back to chapter, uh, to, to chapter th- or th- uh, verse 12 in chapter 3. And then look at this, 19 and 20. I'll compel Pharaoh by a mighty hand, and then 21 and 22, you'll plunder. This is the pattern that you see throughout. I will compel him, you will plunder him. I'll compel him, which is just a nice way of saying, I will bring my hand of wrath, my Thor's hammer, my lightning, whatever you want it to be, I will bring it onto him and I will destroy him. I will compel him. I will break Pharaoh. I'm going to go to war for you. And you're going to plunder. In other words, you're going to be, I'm going to be David. I'm going to be David the shepherd boy with my sling and I'm going to go into the valley of death and fight Goliath while you're hiding, and then you're going to come and plunder the Philistines. And you see it over and over with Gideon. Gideon has this big army. He pairs them down. He gets them down to 300. And he said, now, with just this little band, we will go and I will destroy your enemies, and you will plunder. All the people came after and plundered them. And you see it over and over and over again. God is saying, I will go to war for you. I'll battle your enemies. I will stand for you. I'll compel Pharaoh. You will plunder him. But of course, you know, Moses contradicts him. And I want you to ask yourself this, because really this is, this is the, uh, uh, the interesting thing I think about dealing with God in a relationship. We think we can figure him out, and you really can't because he's too big and too large. And so what 
What happens in our lives, these riptides that come and they sweep you away. They can be anything. Could be something you just weren't aware of, or maybe you intentionally were rebellious. Could be anything. Something sweeps you away and you start thinking, well, I'll figure this all out. I need to figure out what, why it's happening, what went wrong, this, that, and the other thing. And we try to see if we can get God down into our mind and figure out the why. And the reality is that he's inscrutable. You're not going to figure out why. But you are going to have to ask the question or answer the question, will I trust him? I may not know why, but will I trust him? And that's exactly the battle that Moses had. Now, don't you love that? That this great man who we have, I mean, he is really something in in the Scripture. He is one of the greats. And he's exactly like you and I. He has doubt. He has fear. He has insecurity. He has low self-esteem. He has everything that you and I have, and probably more. It would be interesting to have Moses on a psychiatrist's couch, wouldn't it? Anybody that wants to argue with God, you'd have to be insane. You would need a doctor. But he thinks he can do it. And I think it's beautiful because he does what we do. Look, three objections. Verses 1 through 9, he talks about his credibility. Think about your credibility, about your own, our own self-understanding of who we are and how we want other people to accept us. Be a pastor. Listen, that's the idol every one of us, right, Dawson? Every one of us has a pastor's love approval. We live for it. In fact, I need it so bad that every Sunday when I go home with my wife in the car, I'm badgering her about how great it was. Was it good? Was it okay? Was it all right? Was it fine? Was it this? What did that? And we've been married 40 some years and she just, she says a bad word and that's it. I don't get any more than that. You know, shut up or something like that. We're so insecure. We need approval. Think about your credibility. They're not going to listen to me. Who am I? I don't have any status. I don't have any power. I don't have any might. And God says to him, listen, folks, this is what he's saying to Moses. He's saying it to you and I. I don't have credibility. I don't have status. I don't have power. I don't have this. And God says, I know, I understand. But I do. He never is telling you, just go out there and rough it and tough it and be the big strong person. He's never told anyone to do that with the exception of one person. Everybody else on this planet, especially Christians, never are abandoned by God. He never leaves you alone. If you go wandering off into the wilderness for 40 years, He's going to go out there and burn a bush and get you. He is not going to leave you or forsake you. But we think that we can run away from Him, or we can figure Him out, or we can put Him over in some box or do something else. You can't do it. You can't control a burning bush that doesn't get consumed. You can't control this fire. And Moses is being told, I know you don't have credibility. I know you don't have power. I do. Let me show you. And then he shows him these three miracles. And you know, miracles will not cause you to believe. How do we know that? 
People of Christ the King, how do you know that miracles will not cause faith? Because we see them all the time. We saw, we know that Jesus rose from the dead. They didn't believe it. We know the Red Sea parted. They didn't believe it. Now, you might say, well, if I saw the Red Sea uh, split apart, I would believe it. Really? None of them believed it. That's the point of the stories. The point is, miracles cannot cause you to believe. But being in a relationship with somebody, if you know somebody and you're in a relationship with them, you know them, and they know you, and faith is not something you have to gin up. It's not something you have to contrive. You trust them. You believe in them. You hold to them. And this is what he's teaching Moses. The miracles are not going to cause you to believe, but the miracles are going to be a sign to you and everybody else that I am that I am, that I truly exist. Well, Moses pushes that one to the side. I don't know how you do that, but, well, we do it too, but he was, he's just real raw about it. Okay, 10 and 12, verse 10 and 12. Look, I don't have credibility, but I also don't have any skill. I don't have gifts. I don't have any abilities. You know, I I remember when I was in seminary, I don't know if they did this with you guys at Covenant, but at RTS they gave us these tests, you know, where you take skills and gifts. Did you guys do that? How dare they? Yeah, now that you've graduated, you can tell them, "Eh," right? (laughs) I mean, think about that. When people join a church, they want to come into church, we often will give them a gift assessment to try to figure out where to plug them in. In other words, that's the only thing that we, the only reason we want you to come to your church is for your gifts and for your stuff. We should ask people for a financial statement. You guys are slow. I'm not even going to apologize. You should have laughed at that. We should find out how much money you got in your bank account because that's all it's about. We want to know if you can give. Do you have money? Do you have gifts? Do you have something to give us? No, we want to be with you. We want you to come to our church because we want you to be with us. We want to be together so we can eat bread and and drink wine together. So we can have communion. And from that, God promises He'll make sure that He gives gifts wherever we need them. And whenever we need them. But if we're just doing a transaction, you come bring your gifts and I'll give you this and that. We don't have a relationship. We don't have what it will take to build credibility and to speak to Pharaoh, to to actually bring the power of God. This is why I read an article this morning, very early this morning, I'm reading the news. You think I pray before church, but now I read the news. So I'm reading the news and I'm reading an article about how the, the, the bottom has fallen out of the church around the world and especially in America. You all know that, right? You know that, right? It's fallen out. The bottom has fallen out. And when COVID is gone, the, nobody knows who's coming back to church. It's going to be very interesting. The bottom has fallen out. Why? When Before COVID, everybody in the United States is a Christian. After COVID, we don't know. And I'll tell you why. 
Because just coming through the door isn't going to make you a Christian. Just saying the prayers and doing all that. You have to have a relationship with your God, with your Savior. This is what he's telling Moses and what he's telling us. Gifts and ability is not what it's all about. Amount of money, how big your... I mean, we have a beautiful building. The The building is just a building. But are we with one another? Are we together? Character. Listen, character always trumps giftedness. Always. Character. And you can only build care. You can get gifts any number of ways, but character comes from being with your God. Letting Him soak into you and you into Him. And that is what we call transformation. Sanctification. Holiness comes from being with the Holy One. Well, he gives up arguing with God and he just says, nope, send somebody else. Oh Lord, uh, look at verse 13. Please send someone else and the anger of the Lord was kindled or it burned against Moses. And you know, he's in a bur- he's talking to a burning bush. How? And, and the text says his anger burned towards him. I'm just wondering what he's thinking. You know, d- does he think that the Bush is just not going to jump out and burn him too. (laughs) I mean, really? The bush is burning. You shouldn't say things like that to the bush that's burning. It may reach out and burn you, which is what the text says. But of course, it really doesn't. He really doesn't burn him. How often do we want to give up? Now, I don't know about you. I've wanted to give up as, as far back as yesterday afternoon. I won't tell you what it's about because none of your business. But I wanted to quit yesterday afternoon. I made it to this morning just because I made some good coffee this morning. How often we say, I'm gonna, I can't do it, I can't, I gotta give up. And then we say to God, no, nope, nope, I'm done. And you know what he says? No. See your brother Aaron, here he comes. Now let's go. He does not ever give up. God is not a man that he should lie. He doesn't change his mind. These are Moses' words, by the way. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 7. The Lord is your God, Yahweh, Yahweh. He is your God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations. That means it's just endless. A thousand generations. How do you know he will not give up? How do you know? How can you keep going? Now you're going to argue with God and that's okay. Argue your heart away. But at the end of the day, how do you know he will stay with you and be existent for you, be the I am for you every moment of your life? Let me finish with this. This is a most amazing dialogue probably in the entire Bible, starts in chapter 5 of John and runs to the end of chapter 8 of John. I'm just going to read you this, this incredible dialogue that Jesus is having with the rulers of Israel, with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers. He's arguing with them just like the bush was arguing with Moses. And they're on... The, these Pharisees and Sadducees and, and the lawyers are in Moses' place. And Jesus is in the bushes place. Listen, 
I'm the light of the world, Jesus says. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness because you'll have the light of that leads to life. They object. You're making claims about yourself. We don't have to believe those kinds of claims. Your testimony is not valid. And Jesus says, no, I have the testimony of the Father. The Father sent me. Where's your Father? Let's see your Father. Jesus says back to them, you don't know me, you don't even know my Father. If you knew me, you'd know Him. They object. He says, you know, you're from below. I bet he didn't have many people in his church after that, right? You're from below. I'm from above. You'll die in your sins unless you believe that Yahweh, Yahweh. Now that must have just knocked him upside the head. But the dialogue continues. Who are you? Do you see the pattern? Who do you make yourself out to be? They ask Jesus. And he says this. When you've lifted up the Son of Man on the cross, you'll understand Yahweh. You're my disciples. If you remain faithful to my teachings, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they said, argued back with him, we have never been the slave of any man. Now you know Jesus is channeling Exodus chapter 3 right now, don't you? He's channeling Exodus chapter 3, which was about taking them out of slavery. And they're so blind, they say, we've never been enslaved to anybody. We're the descendants of Abraham. And Jesus says to them, everyone that sins is a slave to sin. If the Son sets you free, you're truly free. You're of your father, the devil. You're his children. I honor my father. You dishonor me. I obey his teachings. And I and if you obey my teachings, you will never die. And Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it. And they argued again. Abraham and the prophets are dead. Who are you making yourself out to be? You're not even 50 years old. Who do you think you are? Abraham's dead. Who are you? And Jesus says, Before Abraham was born, Yahweh, I am that I am. In Greek, ego eme. I am, I am. And they finally got it. And the text goes on and says they picked up stones to kill him. Because what do you do when you finally do get a hold of God? You either bow your knee to him because... He is your only hope, your only Savior, or you have to kill Him. You have to put Him to death. And this is what happens. Will you trust the Lord who came to save you by His cross? Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I am lifted up. I will draw all men to you. Will you trust Him? Trust the Lord who gave His life for you. Well, if you've messed up, trust Him. If you're doing good, trust Him. He will never leave you or forsake you. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this day and thank you for reminding us that you love us and that you're with us. And I pray that each one of us will draw near to you, listen to you, hear your voice. And we pray these things in your great son's name. Amen.